Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, this morning we uh, want to look back just for a moment on the uh, series that we're in, just to give you a little perspective, especially for those of you who are visiting. Uh, We started early this fall on a series called Growing Deeper in the Christ-Centered Life, and we talked about the fact that there were four significant elements to growing deeper in the Christ-Centered Life. We talked about our hidden life with Christ and that which speaks to the identity that we get in Jesus Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done for us and how that identity that He possesses becomes ours in Christ. We talked about our death in Christ, a term that most people have no familiarity with, and yet the whole concept of dying to Christ is coming to terms with who we are, with what our nature is, with what limitations we possess, And then seeing, as a matter of fact, that we have to die to those things if we're to live in Him. We talked about our union with Christ, where we explored for a number of weeks the reality of this mystical union that takes place between our spirit and the Holy Spirit of God, who God has graciously put within us so that we might know Him, not just by facts, but we might experience Him in person. We will talk about our vindication with Christ, where we explore the future and what that future means for us and how that future should be impacting us every day. And then finally, where we are right now, we're kind of walking around this concept of being raised up with Christ. You hear the apostles through the letters of the New Testament speak often about the fact that we've been raised up with Christ, we've been raised up with Him, that we have certain riches at our disposal. These five elements are what make up the Christ-centered life. And for the Christian who desires to know Christ more personally, more meaningfully, more powerfully, more deeply, those terms that I've just spoken about, hidden with Christ, died with Christ, raised up with Christ, vindicated in Christ, those terms, resurrected with Christ, they have to become, if I can use computer slang, user-friendly for those of you who are in Christ. They have to become comfortable. You have to have those things as part of your vocabulary, repertoire. They need to be the normal Christian life. And what they mean have a great impact on how you live. Now, two weeks ago, we we began kind of probing this being raised up with Christ. You remember our verse, our kind of key passage is Colossians 3, which says this, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now to be raised up with Christ is to have your mind, your mind every day, not here in church, but your mind every day elevated to what I call a Christian form of higher consciousness. Really, of higher consciousness. Higher consciousness of things above, not just the things that are on the earth. And of course, when he says, set your mind on things above, as Bill mentioned last week, we have to ask the question, what are those things above? And we kind of began to probe some of those things above. We talked two weeks ago about the fact that when you focus on the things above, you focus on forgiveness. You think forgiveness. 
in your everyday life. It's a part of you. And the more you focus, the more you feel freed yourself, and the more you are willing to free up other people who have offended you. On the other hand, when your thoughts go from heaven to earth, and you think on an earthly level, well, we see the results of that around us all the time. One look only to Bosnia, or the gangs that surround our neighborhoods, or the marriages that are at odds with one another, and they don't think forgiveness. You know what they think? They think revenge. And revenge kills. But forgiveness frees. Last week, Bill Wellen spoke about love. And then this week, I have even a more lofty heavenly thought. And that's the word grace. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word grace. For me, it's a word that even as I looked at again this week, I, I realize I probably in my whole life will never fully appreciate. Nevertheless, grace is a word commonly used throughout the New Testament. And it tells us that we should never take our minds off of grace. I've learned that when you take your mind off of grace and you fall back to earth, you become a scorekeeper. Did you know that? When you move away from grace, you become a scorekeeper. And scorekeepers are very rarely are very rarely have any kind of depth in their Christian life. That's because they're always keeping score. Keeping score about life. I did this, so I deserve this. She did that, so she doesn't deserve this. And then it degenerates over time with feelings of life not being fair. <clears throat> that the score in my life is all wrong that I haven't gotten enough. I haven't been paid my due. Someone has cheated me out of my happiness. I didn't deserve this. I deserve much more. You see, that's an earthly thought power. On the other hand, grace is a mysterious, heavenly mindset that acts over all our life without keeping score. You know, over the years, I've had to grapple with this concept called grace, and as you grapple with it, I've found in my own life that there are two predominant thoughts that have to flee when you think of grace. First, the first thought that has to flee is that I can be good enough for God. That I can ever be good enough for God. You might turn over to Galatians just for a moment. Uh, chapter 2. Let me just read a statement that Paul makes. It may be helpful to some of you, but I have to go back to this from time to time. But Galatians a chapter 2 is Paul's writing to these people who are struggling with whether they can be good enough for God. He wants to free them up for that. And he says in verse 15, we, Jews by, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, he's talking about an arrogant kind of mindset. We are Jews by nature. You could almost put in there, we're good guys by nature. Not, not like these pagans. But then he says in verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, we supposedly good guys, have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then he makes this key statement. Look at it there. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's funny, even after becoming a Christian, you 
at times get caught in this little circular bend that says I have to approve myself before God. That because of what I did, somehow I've let God down and He may not love me anymore. But the reality is grace reminds us that we can never be good enough for God. By no works shall the flesh be justified before God. Never. In John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan describes a Christian's journey through life in a wonderful allegory. The central character is aptly named Christian, and he's on his way to a destination called Celestial City. And as Christian moves on this journey, he encounters different types that represent allegories of the Christian life. But there's one gentleman that steps into his life from time to time named Interpreter to help him understand life. On one such occasion, Christian enters into this very large, dusty parlor. And now I'm quoting. It was full of dust because it had never been swept, and after Christian had reviewed it a little while, the interpreter called for a man to begin to sweep. And now when he began to sweep, the dust became so abundant to fly about that Christian had almost therein been choked. And then the interpreter answered, now whereas thou sawest that so soon as the first began to sweep, the dust could not be cleansed, but that thou was almost choked therewith. This is to show thee that the law works. Instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, it does revive sin. The law puts strength into sin. The law increases sin in the soul. And even as thou dost discover and forbid sin in your heart, Thou dost not give power. That does not give power to subdue it. That is so true. When we begin to try to be good enough for God, you know what happens? We begin to see how far we fall short of God. It's like running a race and the harder you run, the further the guy in the front gets ahead of you. And you don't understand that. And you fall woefully short. And that leads you to go back to some dysfunctional behavior in one of three ways. You can first of all become prideful and boastful hypocrites like so many legalists with a lifestyle that boasts of your good deeds, keeps those good deeds out in front of everybody. You keep focused on those things while hiding the myriad of evil deeds that are in your life or denying them altogether. That's dysfunction. You can secondly become a so what sinner. You can try for a while and many young Christians try for a while to make their life work, and when it doesn't work, they finally just throw up their hands and say, so what? And then they just begin to sin with ease. Or you can become fearful and oppressed. You can ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Others seem to be making it. I don't. The harder I try, the worse I am. So something must be wrong with me. You know, all three of those responses are wrong. Because you can never be good enough for God. The only way we come to God is by that word grace. A grace not found in our performance, but a grace that originates in the heart of God. There's a second thought that should immediately flee, and it's on the opposite end of that spectrum, and that is that I can be spiritually passive or lethargic before God because of grace. We reason that if performance doesn't earn us a relationship with God, if it's all His grace, and there are many Christians that fall into this trap, then we are simply free to do as we please. I mean, our sins are forgiven, so there's nothing required of us. That's what the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. 
He called it cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, it is a fatal misunderstanding to suppose that the gospel of pure grace offers a general relaxation from obedience. On the contrary, it means that one must take the call to discipleship even more seriously than before. That was the secret of the Reformation. It was the justification of the sinner. And yet in my day, justification of the sinner has degenerated into only justification for my sin. The upshot of the latter is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave this world for an hour or so on Sunday morning and go to the church to be assured that I am justified of my sins. I need no longer try to follow Christ. For cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, has freed me from that thought. You know, if you understand grace for what it really is, how much it costs God, for how much God really wants to be involved in your life and do for you, the response is not spiritual passivity at all. It is a spiritual pursuit that grace enlists in the heart of one who truly understands it. So what is grace? Well, the Hebrew word hen and the Greek word charis both really imply the same thing. Both imply that grace is acts of undeserved favor which are bestowed upon an undeserving recipient. The essence of the doctrine of grace is that God is for us in spite of us. Isn't that a great statement? <laughs> that He's for us in spite of us. Have you ever had somebody, for some unknown, mysterious reason, just decide to be for you? That happens from time to time. Maybe an employee, an employer just somehow takes a liking to you. That's the word. I remember in high school, I've mentioned this before, I had a coach who, for un some unknown reason, he just took a liking to me. And every time I looked to him, even when he was upset with my performance, there was, there was an edge there that he was for me. He was really inside cheering for me. And it, and it bred a whole sense of, of dignity for me as me because somebody was for me. Now, in that case, or in many human cases, that's because somebody, whether it's an employee, employer or a coach or whatever, they see something in you they're trying to develop. But you know, grace is not that. Grace is not that. Grace is not because God saw something in you that He could develop. Do you know that? Pure grace is something that God found in Himself, period. You had nothing to do with it. It was in Him. That's where pure grace is. We don't inspire God. We, 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 we do nothing to inspire God to be for us. Grace is God's inspiration, period. That's what makes it pure grace. And God's grace is much more than a general attitude. He's not just kind of for us where He kind of smiles like a grandfather and just kind of has a general attitude of love towards us. No, His grace is something that becomes very specific. And if you comb through the pages of the Bible, especially the New Testament, you will find a grace that is a favoritism expressed in terms of very specific acts and deeds. From His for others incarnation, man, that was an incredible moment, to His excruciating death on a cross, to His invading our personal fallen world with His Holy Spirit to touch us, 
to be involved with us, to love us, to convict us, to comfort us, to remind us. When, in fact, in some of those moments, we couldn't stand Him. And the last person we wanted to show up was Him. But He moved in spite of us because He was for us. His constant desire to involve Himself in our lives, His promised final future redemption of us, which He has said He will never go back on His Word, His preparation of a new heavens and a new earth for us that is far beyond any thought you've ever had, any imagination of your heart, eyes not seen, ears not heard, the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. That's grace. Unbelievable grace. Here's a great definition. You might jot it down, I think. Grace is God's costly, grace is God's costly, undeserved, life giving involvement day to day in our lives because He's for us. Grace is God's costly undeserved, life-giving involvement in our lives because He is for us. Now just for a moment, you might turn over to John chapter 1. <clears throat> and in John chapter 1, John is introducing us to Jesus Christ, but he makes this great statement. I want to use that definition to show you what it means, because I'm not sure if we oftentimes have that real specific kind of definition. Grace is just kind of a syrupy feeling that God's just going to take care of us, and, and it's very unspecific. But I want you to know it's very specific. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, look at verse 14. It says, And the Word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of costly, undeserved, life-giving involvement day-to-day -day in our lives and truth. That's what He's full of. That's why He came. So He could be involved. Look at verse 16. For of His fullness we have all received costly, undeserved, life-giving involvement upon costly, undeserved, life-giving involvement. He's for us. Over and over again, He's moving to invade our personal world to give us, to coach us, to help us, to comfort us. And why? Because we deserve it? Not if you were here for the messages on death. <laughs> we, we deserve just the opposite of that. And yet He does it because out of the own, His own inspiration, of His own heart and nature, He is inspired to be for us. That's why when you open the little letters of the epistles, they always begin the same way. Every one of them did. Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. They all start the same way. Paul, an apostle, called of Jesus Christ to so-and-so and so-and-so. -and -so. Grace and peace be with you. You know what he's saying? He's not saying grace kind of like, I hope you have a good life. He's saying God's costly, undeserved, unmerited favor, I hope it's all over you. That's what he's saying. I hope you're experiencing Him coming in, invading your private, personal world, 
You're feeling His forgiveness. You're seeing Him bring things to you you don't deserve and you're marveling at it. Grace and peace be with you. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who understands fully our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of, remember it? God's costly, undeserved involvement in our life. That's why you come to the throne of grace. Because at the throne of grace, God gets involved. Not because you deserve anything. You've made a mess of it and you probably deserve to wallow in what you've created. But when you come to the throne of grace, you don't find somebody who's going to rub your nose in it. You find somebody who's for you. Always. And is willing to give you His costly, undeserved involvement to help you. That's what you find. See, when we understand that, we begin to know how much God makes a difference in our life. And rather than just be passive and lethargic about grace, we begin to actively pursue it. We begin to pray for it. We begin to seek it. I want to sample in the time we have left five very specific ways that God's grace makes a difference in our life. <clears throat> you might jot these down. They're not on your outline, but here's the first one. By grace, we become usable to God. By grace, we become usable to God. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. By grace, we become usable to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's the great resurrection chapter, Paul makes this statement about himself. He says, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles. That's an interesting statement. For I am the least of, of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Gosh, that's a great statement. You have to ask, well, is Paul kind of, uh, is there false humility here when he says, I'm the least of the apostles? He's just trying to exaggerate. You know, unlike all these other apostles who Jesus Christ offered himself to and then they responded, uh, Paul didn't get to choose. <laughs> you think about his life. He got drafted into apostleship. Left to himself, Paul was nothing more than a religious egomaniac who killed Christians for satisfaction. That was the real Paul. That's who he was. And he would have just been a, a timeless, insignificant religious blip on history's landscape were it not for the grace of God. But then the grace of God intervened powerfully on the road to Damascus without his approval. Then he was pushed into the desert by the grace of God where he went through years of desert discipleship. It was all undeserved, life-giving involvement. But out of all of that, of God moving to him, not Paul moving to God, he became usable to God. It was the grace of God that gave him a privileged part in one of history's greatest moments. It was the grace of God that energized him to do his ministry, that caused him to succeed, that helped him to persevere. It was the grace of God, totally undeserved, that made him, in his words... What I am. Period. There were no bragging rights here. He couldn't boast about it. You know, I can relate to Paul. I really can. I, I thought about that this weekend. I never set out to be a pastor. 
fact, if you saw me at 20 years old, you'd see a guy who, well, quite frankly, I just wasn't comfortable with guys in the ministry. They look weak. They look unmasculine to me. They look like people who couldn't do anything else. And I didn't want to have anything to do with them. It just gave me kind of the creeps a little bit. Growing up, it would have been my life's last choice. And by the way, for the friends who knew me, it would have been their last choice. <laughs> I want you to know. I thought, what would I have been like without grace? And I thought, you know, I would have been a repeat of my father. That's what I would have been. Except I think I would have been a little meaner. I would have been a lot more angrier. And I would have probably been much more self-indulgent. That's who I would have been. And yet here I am standing before you. <laughs> you know what that's called? Grace. Pure grace. There were four very gracious moments in my life. And I thought back and I thought, you know, here are four moments I had nothing to do with that steered me to this pulpit today. The first was even before I was a Christian. I was a high school senior to trying to decide where to go to school. And my whole life I'd wanted to play athletics at LSU. And the coaches were flying up to sign me to a scholarship. The photographers and reporters were there. And unbeknownst to me, suddenly in the midst of all that excitement, I felt this heaviness that I've never been able to explain except now on this side of my Christian experience. And so everybody arrived at my house and my mom and dad were all thrilled and, and I had to do something because of the oppressed nature that I was feeling. I had to say, I'm not going to do that. And nobody could understand why and I couldn't explain why. It made no sense to me or them. And a week later, I signed with Arkansas. And I wasn't even sure why I was doing that, but it just somehow felt right. But unbeknownst to me, that was the plan of God, I believe, working. Sovereign grace to take me to a place where in the next nine months I would find Jesus Christ as my Savior. Then along the way, there was the grace of God that brought around my life the kindest woman I have ever met or ever yet to meet. More kind than anybody else. And God graciously brought her into my life to temper, to put up with, to have patience for this rough, irritating, ragged individual. And it's become my wife, Sherrod, who I translate that Scotch-Irish name to be Grace. Then there was a broken neck my third year in college, ending my football career that I thought was a tragedy. But the reality was that all that did was provide time for me at that point in my life, now a young Christian, to concentrate fully on spiritual things. And then there was a phone call to the desert in 1980 that said, would you be interested in being a pastor of that I had nothing to do with? I'd never put my resume out. I'd never thought any of that. And all of those gracious, sovereign moments have steered me to stand right here this morning in front of you. Did I deserve any of it? No. Do I deserve it now? No. Could I have earned it? Never. Honestly, <laughs> I see myself as the least of the pastors here. I really do. But I'm thankful for the grace of God because I am what I am because of Him. Secondly, by grace, we find power in weakness. You're in 1 Corinthians. You might turn to 2 Corinthians 12. I am finding power in weakness. Paul writes of himself in 2 Corinthians 12, look at verse 7, he says, 
And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, distresses, persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We could spend days just dwelling on that statement. But here's what it says. All of us live with our own human frailties, our weaknesses, our wounds that have invaded our lives and dog our steps every day. You brought them in here this morning with you. We suffer, we've been hurt, we've been wounded, we fail, we blow it, we have heartaches and we have handicaps. Medications won't relieve it, prayer won't remove it, and no matter what we do, blaming and complaining doesn't help it, it only torments us further. And yet, interestingly enough, along the way, because of the grace of God, He's used all of that to make me think about relationships and to think about His blueprint for marriage and to hold on to it like a guy holding on to a life preserver in a raging sea. And I found success there. And I found help. I've even written about it. I find myself speaking to thousands about it. And I go, me? After one of the talks, I had a number of people came up to me and they said, you know, that, that just gives me hope. You know, oftentimes we come and all we hear is about how these guys grew up in great families. They had great moms and dads. They were great Christians and all that. And they've turned out to be great people and they're powerful leaders. Totally without weakness. It was just good to hear somebody who was a mess. Still is a mess. And I said, here I am. They're still angry, some of those folks. They feel like they've been abused. They hate the fact they went through a divorce. They feel like they've been cheated in life. They're keeping score. They're still carrying open wounds of bitterness, but somehow, just by me being up there saying those things and seeing my weaknesses, they saw power. <laughs> they saw God. They saw hope. And they saw something even more important. They saw that all that had happened to them need not be a curse, but it could become an opportunity for the power of God to be displayed in weakness. I don't know what you have here this morning that makes you feel vulnerable and weak, but you know I have found that God delights in going into those very open wounds, those very hurts, those very deep vulnerabilities, and doing something very marvelous, and taking all that and making it something of His kingdom that can be shared and bless others. It's an amazing thing. Power and weakness. It's called grace. Thirdly, notice... By grace, we can value differentness. You might turn to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Interesting statement Paul makes to husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's, it's grace in relationships. And he's saying without grace, we don't value differentness. Differentness irritates us. It divides us. 
Paul's words to husbands here is that your wife needs understanding because she's a woman. You see it there? And you're a man. And there's a difference there. And there's a gap to be bridged and only grace can bridge it. Despite what many feminists would say, we know, don't we, men and women, we're different. I don't know about your house, but you might ask at your house, who owns the channel changer at your house? That's right. We men, we men own the channel changer. We don't care what's on. We only care what else is on, right? That's all we care about. And you women, sometimes you baffle us. I mean, there are so many unique feminine traits like going to the bathroom in herds. Have you ever noticed that? You're, here you are at a Razorback game and your, your wife says, I think I'm going to go to the restroom. And she turns to her friend and says, would you like to go with me? And she goes, oh, I'd love to. And somebody hears that from the row behind and says, can we go too? And they say, sure. And it starts to work its way up the section. About that time, 500 women are all going to the bathroom at one time. Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine after that's happening, I'm sitting there and I turn to my friend Joe and I say, Joe, would you like to go to the bathroom with me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. He calls the police and I'm arrested. That's what happens. <laughs> See, we're different. And we can get irritated with those differences. But you know, it gets much more serious than just that. God's involvement, His life-changing involvement, Him getting involved inside our head and inside our spirit on a day-to-day -day basis allows our minds to begin for the first time to appreciate and value differentness rather than to be opposed to it. This appreciation of our differentness extends far beyond men and women. It extends to races, black and white, and white and black. It extends to personalities, strong personalities versus sensitive personalities. Sensitive personalities versus strong personalities. You see, we see those differences and they irritate us. But when the grace of God comes, we begin to value those differences in an understanding way. To appreciate their uniquenesses. To enjoy them. To see their strengths rather than being threatened and repulsed by their weaknesses. You know what that's called? The grace of God. And you know what you find in a marriage that's chief about healthy marriages? Is somehow, in some way, by the grace of God, they look at that other person, and what they see are the strengths of their differentness. Not the weaknesses. Well, I have two more, but I'm not going to have time for two more. So I'm going to skip and go just to the last one. By grace, we find strength to stand for what we believe. You might turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. This writer writes in verse 7, he says, Remember those who led you and who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Why? Because Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Verse 9 says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Gosh, I'm glad to be a little older. I really am. I'm glad I'm turning 45 because I've had the opportunity to view from a historical standpoint the different fads that have swept into our country every 10 years or so 
and I've watched them sweep up people into tragedy and sweep them away. And yet I've been privileged to see by the grace of God those whose message in one generation was offensive and in the next generation was life-giving. And in the next generation it was offensive again and in the next generation it was life-giving. It's really interesting. Varied and strange teachings. Remember in 1984 in that auditorium up on the hill was the first time I spoke on abortion. I want you to know it was stony silence. People didn't like to think about that. We were in a day where everybody had their own personal rights. We, didn't, we, we, we just thought that's something you don't speak about from the pulpit. And I remember walking away from that. Even though there was a strange teaching sweeping our world that life was no longer sacred, and yet nobody wanted to stand up and speak because they somehow felt that wasn't their place. And yet all of life, the definition of life was being transformed. When I finished, I remember going home. Nobody spoke to me. Nobody said a word. Everybody just cleared out of the auditorium. <laughs> you know, in that moment, I needed God's undeserved involvement in my heart. I needed to be strengthened by grace. I needed to know somebody at that moment was for me because I felt so alone. You know, you look at our country today, there are varied and strange teachings sweeping people all over the place. There is. And today, we all need our hearts to be strengthened by grace. We need grace if we're to stand for kids who need more than daycare. We need grace if we're going to stand against even a friend who's getting a frivolous divorce. We need grace to stand up for ethics at our company or with our friends in the fraternity or at school. We need grace because without grace, we become cowards. Do you know that? Without grace, we become compromisers. Without grace, we surrender in silence. Listen, today more than ever before, Christians need a heavy dose of grace to stand for what they believe. And without it, I want you to know, our country will literally be carried away by strange teachings. Teachings that are so absurd that right become wrong and wrong becomes right. And I want you to know this. I know some of you are excited about the elections, but government is not going to save you. Grace is going to save you. Grace is going to save us. And if us get saved, government will just simply be an outflow of a righteous, deliberate people. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.